Production support comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922 with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Also, Premier Ortho, a division of Premier Healthcare, helping people living with injuries and chronic back, spine, or joint pain to get back on their feet. Premier Ortho, 333-1933. Online at mypremierortho.com. Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Salzberg, editor of the Herald Times in Bloomington. And today we're going to talk about uh, Arizona's immigration law. Mary Catherine Carmichael is here with me, of course. Hi, Bob. We're going to talk about uh, Arizona's immigration law and Indiana's copycat law and the uh, Wednesday Supreme Court hearings on Arizona's law and uh, what that might mean for Indiana's laws. We go forward. We have Three guests with us in the studio, and one will be joining us by phone. Uh, Christy Pop is here. She's directing Attorney Immigrants and Language Rights Center at Indiana Legal Services. Alicia Nieves is with us. She's coordinator for the Indiana Student Coalition for Immigrant Rights. And Fred Diego is here. He's a member of the IU student group Dream IU. Joining us by phone will be Angela Adams, attorney with Lewis and Caps in Indianapolis. Uh, her firm is representing the ACLU in a lawsuit against Indiana's immigration law. If you have questions or comments, please phone us at 855-0811 in Bloomington or 877-285-9348 from outside of the Bloomington area. The web address is wfiu.org slash noon edition. You can go there for a live chat. So welcome to everybody. We should say that Christy was a guest recently, and we Mm -hmm. felt like we just scratched the surface of things that we wanted to talk about with her. And so she's been kind enough to come back in fairly short order. So thanks for coming back. You're welcome. It's a big issue, and we do appreciate your being back. Uh, We're going to start by uh, bringing Angela Adams in. Angela, are you there? I'm here. Hi, good morning. Th- I or think. Good afternoon. I just <laughs> yeah. Barely good afternoon. Well, thanks for joining us today. Uh, could you just describe to us what uh, the lawsuit's about, the, uh, the, in, the Indiana lawsuit against the immigration law? Sure. Um, last year, last session, there was a law passed, the um, SEA 590, which did a lot of different things, um, and many of which went into effect on July 1. Um, But there were two provisions specifically that were challenged by a lawsuit in federal court. I am one of the attorneys on the lawsuit along with um, representatives of the ACLU in Indiana and national ACLU. And um, we are challenging two provisions only. So the rest of the law actually went into effect, but these two provisions uh, specifically deal with, one deals with um, use or acceptance. It penalizes uh, or criminalizes the use or acceptance of consular identification cards. So those cards that are issued as per- for purposes of identification that people use for many different reasons, like um, cashing checks or picking their kids up at daycare or buying a prescription drug or something along those lines, um, or even opening a bank account. They, that provision would, in essence, criminalize that, um, so that pe- so that businesses could not accept them and people could not use them as well. That's one. And then the other section that's being challenged is one that makes it um, that says that police may arrest without a warrant someone who they have they believe um, who they have probable cause to think that they have a removal order, a notice of action, uh, detainer or that they have been indicted for or convicted of an aggravated felony. And so that's a little complicated, um, but in, I guess in short, um, those are all things that are actually federally, um, federal definitions and things that are interpreted by courts and very difficult to, to determine actually what constitutes an aggravated felony. And in addition to that, um, the three plaintiffs that are in representing a class in this lawsuit, uh, the three plaintiffs are all people who have been identified as lawful or here in the United States with permission of the federal government who may or may not have status. One of them has an outstanding removal order against her, but she is actually here with permission of the federal government on an order of supervision. So if this provision went into effect, those are 
three people who are representative of a class that would possibly be subject to arrest, uh, even though the federal government has said, you can be here and we know you're here and it's okay. So the basic issue here, and is similar to, I know you're going to talk about the Arizona mm-hmm. lawsuit in the, mm-hmm. in the Supreme Court, is uh, the, the, similarly the issue is preemption. Whether a state can enact a law in the area of immigration that where the federal government has already spoken in this area, or whether, really, whether the state can go beyond what the federal government has said they can and can't do in these cases, you know, um, going a little bit beyond what the federal government has actually, is actually able to do, and whether the laws conflict. Mm-hmm. So how does the Indiana law compare to the, uh, the Arizona law? I mean, what are, are, there, are there differences? Yeah, they're very different, uh-huh. actually. Very similar issue. We know it's about immigration. Uh-huh. We know it's kind of similar copycat legislation, but um, and the issue is preemption, but they're written very differently. And, and in the Arizona lawsuit, the challenge, they challenged four provisions, and the other provisions actually went into effect. Four provisions were um, there was a preliminary injunction uh, by the Ninth Circuit, and then now that's what's at the Supreme Court. So there are actually four provisions that are in dispute right now that are being challenged. So we could see, and I know Christy's going to talk about this, but we could see a split. We could see, you know, the court upholding two and striking down two. We could see, you know, many different things. So um, those four provisions are very different from the two that are being challenged in Indiana. There's In the Arizona lawsuit, I don't believe there's anything that that um, relates to the use or acceptance of consular identification card. And similarly, the other provision that's being challenged is written differently. It's not a show me your papers, please, like the Arizona law is. It's not that broad, that that kind of, you know, um, open for, you know, interpretation. It's more... Um, descriptive. They've, they've actually said those, you know, when a police officer can actually arrest someone is they, if they have those four things. So it's, it's quite different, even though the issue is the same. I mean, the issue, if, as long as, let me see if I understand it right. I mean, the issue really, the legal issues have a lot to do with whether the state can um, enact a law that conflicts with or that is stronger than the federal Exactly. Exactly. All right. right. Well, thanks for that description. Christy, do you want to uh, talk a little bit more about what what went on in the Supreme Court this week? Sure. Well, as many people know, on Wednesday, the Supreme Court heard oral arguments in the Arizona case. I think it's important to know where the case is in in the, the process, the legal process. It's just a hearing on the preliminary injunction. And what that means is that the United States government asked the courts to enjoin or stop for a temporary, for a period, the the application of four sections of the law. What, I think the government actually may have asked for an injunction against more, but they got it on, on these four sections of the law. At the district court level, the Ninth Circuit upheld the injunction, and then now it's appealed to the Supreme Court. So this is really a very early stage of the litigation. It doesn't mean that the Arizona law will be upheld in the future, even if the Supreme Court says that we're not going to uphold the injunction against the four sections of the law. So that's important. It's not in what we call an as-applied challenge. It's a facial challenge. And a facial challenge means that they are saying on the face without the law going into effect, it conflicts or preempts federal law. And so they're, they're just trying to stop the law from going into effect period. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, our phone numbers today, again, as usual, 855-0811 in Bloomington, 877-285-9348. The web address, wfiu.org slash noon edition. Uh, Fred and Alicia, I wanted to ask you just in general, I mean, you're two students here at IU. I mean, the, all the, this focus on immigration law, I mean, how, that, how is that sort of affecting you both? Fred? Well, a couple of students here at IU are in this category of undocumented, and roughly a dozen are students that we know to be undocumented. And of those dozen, only three are still full-time. The rest have dropped to reduce the amount of classes due to the increase in financial strain. <clears throat> For example, out of, of these three that are still students, all of them have a special scholarship that still grants them a full ride, but the burden is very heavy on the rest of these students. Mm-hmm. And how, how did the law change 
for them? What, what, what did the law change for them? Well, I think right now we're talking about mm-hmm. another um, law. So, mm-hmm. so as we talk about how immigration laws mm-hmm. is being played out in Indiana, there's, there's two. So Angela talked about 590, and mm-hmm. um, Fred just kind of touched upon another one, uh-huh. um, which um, we, we're not talking about right now, which is 1402, which um, takes away in-state tuition for undocumented mm-hmm. youth. So they're very much coupled. They were coupled um, at the, the previous um, legislative session. Mm-hmm. So, so 14, 1402 is the one that's having an Impact the most That's the one that took, a, took effect in July of 2011. Right. Yeah. So 590 right now is is being um, is litigated, but but 1402 has definitely been. A and law. it's actually mm-hmm. in 590 also. Oh, so, okay. Yeah, the the provision taking away in state tuition um, is in 590 and 1402, mm-hmm. and so there were you know, and that was not challenged as part of the lawsuit. And just so I can clarify, you can have you can have been born in the United States but be undocumented? Is that right? No, that's not right. No. Okay. If you're born in the United States, you are a citizen automatically, and so you're good to go as far as qualifying for state tuition and all other rights and privileges of citizenship. Okay. Correct. So, okay. All right. So, uh, Alicia, the coordinator for Indiana Coalition for Immigrant, right, Im- immigration, immigrant Rights, mm-hmm. what exactly is that network, and how did you get involved? Right. Um, well, it kind of came about uh, so so kind of a, a backstory um, because uh, I guess that's kind of important. But um, there's a federal piece of legislation called um, the Dream Act, which would uh, provide um, a pathway to legalization, legal status for undocumented youth, so those that are unauthorized to be in the United States. But you know, many came as two year olds, so they're very much American. Um, and so that's been going on for 10 years. And, and there's been a, a very informal um, network of youth, high schoolers, college-age students that are really passionate about this issue because it affects them, affects their community, affects their family. Um, and, and so with that premise, with, with that, that kind of background, um, you know, the, the General Assembly came together and they decided to pass 590, 1402. Um, and so this organization was all about trying to get youth um, and get community members engaged about this issue, seeing that, you know, this is this is really um, detrimental um, law for, for many students. And, and so how do we engage with community? How do we engage with public officials about this issue? Mm-hmm. Um, clearly, we weren't terribly successful. Um, it, it passed um, pretty overwhelmingly. Um, but but it, then again, you know, where are we? We're in a recession, we're in a tough economic time, and it's so easy to kind of blame the immigrant. So mm-hmm. um, it's not about winning this this particular moment, but to continue to talk about it and dialogue about it. Mm-hmm. I'm going to digress a little bit, but in other states that have um, have passed laws that are very restrictive toward immigrants, that ac- actually has hurt a lot of the economies in those states. Correct? Mm-hmm. I mean that. Um, you know, examples, Mississippi is one, I believe. Well, right? Mississippi considered passing a copycat law, and I don't believe they did because the outcry from the chambers of commerce and the farmers were so great. But Alabama certainly mm-hmm. has felt the effect in Georgia as well. Georgia uh, has a lot of the farmers had to let their crops rot last summer because they couldn't get people to pick the crops. Mm-hmm. Well, we've had a question come in online um, from Bill. It says, uh, what are some of the forces driving anti-immigrant sentiments in this country? I know a lot of folks are afraid for their jobs in this economic climate, but it seems like things would be more complicated than that. Are there other attitudes or powers in play? We were just kind of alluding to some of that. Um, does anybody want to take that one on? Well, a lot of these anti-immigrant laws come from they're drafted from the same law, and these laws were written by a man called Chris Kobach. He is governor of... Secretary yeah, of State. Secretary of State. And in Kansas. M- yeah, in Kansas. And he's actually working. He's right, drafting and advocating and defending these laws in court. And he's connected with ALEC. And a lot of these anti-immigrant laws come from ALEC, and they are pushed by the for-profit industri- prison industrial comp- complex. So... Essentially, they're criminalizing these individuals, and they can then be detained in their complexes. Mm-hmm. So, so you th- you're, you're asserting there's a profit motive behind this? For yeah, you. Okay. yeah right. very strong profit uh-huh. motive. Mm-hmm. And if I may, can I comment? Absolutely. Yeah. The fear, I think, is, is really an issue. I think um, we get a lot of misinformation in the community from different groups, anti-immigrant groups um, like FAIR, the Federation for American Immigration Reform, and some of their affiliate organizations 
um, who actually endorse and support candidates who oppose not just illegal but also legal immigration. Um, you know, so the attitudes towards immigrants in general and specifically Latinos have been, you know, primarily driven by fear um, of, you know, and the unknown, I think. Well, doesn't this kind of fear and and, um, suspicion of immigrants uh, kind of go hand in hand when the economy goes bad? Isn't this kind of a historical pattern that we've seen over time? Absolutely. Yes, you have. And you've seen it with different immigrant groups as well, depending on what, you know, the time and, and the, the um, you know, back many, many years ago, um, we saw this with the Chinese Exclusion Act. And we saw this, you know, this is very similar to some parallels to the civil rights movement. So we've got a lot of different, you know, and, and usually you're right. It's driven by the economy, driven by. But unfortunately, I find and that immigration policy is not really driven by the economy. So I think we need immigration reform that is supportive of the economy and bringing jobs and bringing and, and making our workforce stronger and um, giving more opportunities to investors so that they can come spend their money here and create more jobs. I think we need more, you know, immigration reform that is actually um, supports economic reform. What, what are the fears um, that these laws are trying to address? I think if I can please about this, um, it's definitely based on um, a couple of things. So there's the private and public uh, aspect of it. So um, Fred just talked about kind of the, the private, which is you know detention centers are, are are incredibly profitable for for certain industries that they build them and that put them into detention um, into these centers. Um, and so there's there's that um, business aspect um, that doesn't benefit our economy. And I think another one is, you know, the state legislators who are really excited about passing these type of laws because they truly believe, um, for instance, um, State Senator Mike Dell from, from Carmel, he, you know, he's really excited about this, thinking that, oh, it'll, you know, it, this is going to help with the dangers of crime and just, just, you know, think of all the negatives, right? Um, and think of a scary, dark person. And but but that's not what's really happening, right? Because when when we look at the studies that are non bi that that are not biased, we look at um, economists who say you know immigration is beneficial, hands down, right? And it is reflective not of people who are criminals, but of economic decision making. So there's a recent report that came out with the Pew Hispanic Center let, this week that says that immigration is down by uh, by over a million, right? Mm-hmm. So. It, Clearly, it's not people saying, "Well, I'm going to you know, steal someone's job. I'm going to, you know, do terrible things to the, to, you know, these people." But in fact, you know, I'm looking for a job, and I know it's here, and I know people in America don't want it. And it's as basic as that. It is the most basic thing that humans do. We make decisions to survive. Mm-hmm. And so, I think, and I don't think state legislators want to accept that because that's that doesn't get you votes. Talking. Being rational sometimes just doesn't get you votes, and that's the, the reality. Mm-hmm. A, lot, a lot of political posturing, I think, too, and then fear fear of talking about the issue because the issue is so complex. And I find that, um, you know, many, many people, legislators, like to speak in kind of bumper stickers and, and something that sells to the audience that they're speaking to instead of really... Um, explaining and trying to understand the issue. Like, for example, I've heard certain candidates say that you should, they agree with this idea of self-deportation, that somebody should leave the country and come back the right way. But as Christy knows, you know, that's, that's usually, in most cases, a legal impossibility. Because of the way that our law is, if you've been here, if you enter without inspection, you cannot fix your status in the United States. It's a uh, there is no law that can allow you to do that. So you have to leave the country to fix it at the consulate abroad. But when you leave the country, there's a catch-22. If you've been here for over 180 days without status, you're subject to a three-year bar. And if you've been here for over a year without status, you're subject to a 10-year bar. So in most cases, people are stuck. They can't stay and they can't go. So the laws actually perpetuate this. And it's really hard to explain that to a constituent in a, on a level that you know, people can understand. Mm-hmm. Would, the, would the DREAM Act have, have uh, addressed some of these issues? Yeah, it would have definitely taken um, a certain, and these are, these are bright students, you know, they're, 
there, we're talking about a very special small minority of, stu- of students, young people between the ages of, depending on the legislation, 18 to 25, who have you know, taken advantage of our education system, um, wonderful students, and that would provide them a pathway. Um, and currently there is no pathway. You can have a PhD. You can have a, 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 a degree in cognitive science or, or you know, biology or computer science. And you have absolutely no way of legalizing yourself in the United States. And you're a cult- you're culturally uh, an American, yes. and you may in fact not have anyone to return to in your quote unquote native country. Right. And some of the, these youth don't even speak, you know, uh, predominantly Spanish. They don't they don't even understand the language um, fluently enough, or or even understand what what this uh, this 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 foreign country that they left at the age of two. So. Now you just mentioned speaking Spanish, but so do you feel like these laws are specifically targeting Hispanics? They target his spent. Yeah, and I think even in this federal court case, the federal Sarah, Judge Sarah Evans Barker mentioned in the preliminary injunction decision that the, the provision dealing with consular identification cards clearly targets a certain population of immigrants because the majority of people that have consular IDs are Mexican. So it's, it's really an effort to disenfranchise those people. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then I had another question. Um, you know, Indiana growing up here, we've had a have a long tradition of uh, a migrant population, you know, in the summer to come here and, and pick our crops. How do these uh, laws affect our migrant population? Well, I, I can talk about that a little bit. Um, th- they affect in two ways. They're, they're legal migrants, and those can either be people who are citizens. And there are migrant farm workers who are citizens, and they live in Texas or Florida part of the year and come up. And then there are legal migrants who come on visas. Those are very difficult to get. Mm-hmm. And then there are migrant farm workers who are not documented. So it affects all of those because a lot of times the citizens and legal the legal migrants are married to or have family members who are undocumented. So when a state Mm -hmm. has made a decision to do what they call attrition through enforcement or trying to get rid of people who don't have status, the ones who are legal aren't going to come either because they're going to be scared that they're going to be stopped and frisked or arrested about their status or they're afraid that their family members will. So as a whole, the the farm workers don't come. And I can't say specifically about whether that has happened in Indiana, but I know it has happened in other states, and they've seen a huge decrease in the number of migrant farm workers who've come through to help in, in, in the fields. This concept of attrition through enforcement is uh, one that essentially it's, it's making laws that are trying to make life so miserable for people mm-hmm. that they're just going to go back. Right? That's exactly what it is. Mm-hmm. It, it is, and that, and they have said as much. Um, <clears throat> It's self-deportation. It's making life so difficult that people will just throw up their arms and and they can't do anything anymore. Mm -hmm. They just leave. We're going to have to take a a short break. But first, I do want to say that uh, our producers invited um, a legislator to come on with us today to, to, uh, I guess, represent the other side of this issue. And and we've had a legislator on before who talked about carrying legislation in Indiana, immigration legislation in Indiana. Uh, So it wasn't for lack of uh, trying that that we didn't get somebody on today. We, We did try. We just didn't. Didn't make it. So uh, we're talking about immigration. Arizona's case came before the Supreme Court uh, this week, and uh, Indiana's case has some similarities that we've been talking about. You're listening to Noon Edition. We'll be right back. This is Noon Edition on WFIU. Production support comes from Smithville, information at smithville.net, and from Premier Ortho, online at mypremierortho.com. You can take WFIU with you by downloading podcasts directly to your PC, Mac, or MP3 player. Programs such as Noon Edition, Ask the Mayor, and Harmonia, and short features like Kinsey Confidential, the Ether Game Musical Mini Quiz, and Play and Opera Reviews are all available on demand. Pick them up at WFIU.org. And have you heard WFIU's news features? The WFIU News Team brings you expanded and in-depth reports on topics affecting South Central Indiana. 
Catch the Friday feature just after 8.30 during Morning Edition, just before Noon Edition, and at 5.45 during All Things Considered. They're also archived on our website, WFIU.org. Welcome back to Noon Edition. We're getting our papers straight here. Uh, I'm Bob Zaltzberg with the Herald Times, along with Mary Catherine Carmichael. We're talking about immigration law today uh, with Christy Pop, the directing attorney in Immigrants and Language Rights Center at Indiana Legal Services. Alicia Nieves, who's the coordinator for Indiana Coalition for Immigrant Rights. She's a student at IU. Another student at IU is with us, Fred Diego, who's a member of the IU student group Dream IU. And joining us by phone is Angela Adams, an attorney with Lewis and Caps in Indianapolis. If you have questions or comments, please phone us at 855-0811 or 877-285-9348. The web address is wfiu.org slash noon edition. And we have a question that has come in from Adriana. Hi, Adriana. Uh, it says, I hear a lot of talk about undocumented immigrants receiving public benefits without paying taxes as a reason for immigrating. What benefits are undocumented immigrants able to gain access to without an ID? Okay. Well, I can – this is Christy. I can answer that. Um, so, so first of all, the the basic answer is none. Um Immigrants do not come to the United States to get public benefits, and they also do pay taxes. So that's the the when people make that argument, it's wrong on two points. But so they can't vote. They can't. They don't vote. get any benefit from the taxes that they pay. That's right. But hey, you can pay taxes. That's right, and Social Security, and all the FICA, and all of those things as well. It all goes into the pot. But uh, children of so if a child is born in the United States, that child is a citizen. So the child can receive. Medicaid or food stamps if the child is eligible for that based on the income. But the parents or any other immigrant that is not legal can't get it. I should also say that even legal immigrants cannot get most public benefits. And they can't for at least, if they're a lawful permanent resident, they can't for at least five years. And most other immigrants can't get them, period. So mm-hmm. it's it's really a fallacy to say that immigrants try to get public benefits because they don't. And yet all of those groups, again, are paying into those, those systems. If they're working, they are. If they're working. Yeah, right. Okay. Um, by the way, we need to say that Angela has left the discussion. Okay. And we need to thank her. So thank you well, very much, Angela Adams. Yeah, Angela Adams was with us from Indianapolis, and that was uh, great to have her. Um, I know that uh, during the – I just wanted to ask you, Christy, about about this, and I guess the other two of you as well. It seems – one of the things that seems to be to me, from my perspective, to be the most onerous thing about a lot of these immigration laws is how it appears to be profiling. Um, and I know, you know, I know there are legal reasons for this, but I was struck that uh, the Chief Justice, when the, in the beginning of the um, the arguments this week, uh, told the uh, the person who was the Solicitor General who was representing the the uh, um, U.S. in this, uh, that this has nothing to do with you know your arguments will have nothing to do with racial pro- and ethnic profiling. Can you explain why that came up and why that was an important point? Sure. Well, as I explained a little while ago, the the stage where we are in the, the litigation is only at the preliminary stage. We're just discussing an injunction. And the U.S. government is challenging the statute on its face, saying that on its face, the statute try, is trying to preempt federal law and federal priorities. This is not an as-applied challenge. It's not somebody who has been discriminated in the process of the law being enforced bringing a suit. Now, those laws or those, sorry, those suits are coming up and people are going to be challenging the law based on having been discriminated against. But the chief justice just did not want the argument to devolve in any way to talking about issues that were not being brought forward to the court. And I think at one point in the oral argument, the general really did, I think his name is really, he did start to cite some statistics and frame it in terms of harassment and and the and the justices stopped him from going down that that path of of argument mm-hmm. um, just sticking with this idea of um, profiling you know the, the two of you um, are hispanic correct i mean mm-hmm. is that the proper word to use i guess latino latino i prefer mexican mexican okay um 
is this an issue for you? The, when you read these laws, uh, is the you know profiling issue something that that bothers you, Fred? Well, yes, because at any given moment, if I'm driving and I'm pulled over, I can be asked for proof of citizenship, something that feels like a violation of my privacy. So, yeah, it's kind of an issue because it impinges on my right to feel safe, to not feel discriminated against. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So. And I think on like a larger scale, too, it, it's, it definitely affects other the Latino community in general because it, it creates this unwelcoming um, feeling by um, a larger body, um, the larger population. I think, I think a really interesting statistic that came out from the U.S. Census um, and just kind of like looking at the numbers, it says that um, there's an 18, for all the children that are born in the United States right now today, 18% of them will be, um, will have at least one parent who is undocumented. And, and so I think there's, there's, there's a political ramification of that number along with the fact that there are over 4 million right now um, children who have one, at least one undocumented parent. So we're talking about not just, you know, what are the rights of immigrants, but what are the rights of citizens? What are the rights mm-hmm. of citizens who live in what we call mixed status families? And that's, that's the, that's, there's so much um, legal implication, but also social. Mm-hmm. Um, we've had another comment okay, come sure. in online. If you don't mind, I'll share this one. It says, this is a great panel. I agree. Uh, usually the media paints this as just another partisan political issue, and it's good to see the story behind the issue from folks on the ground. Does the media portrayal of this issue, from using the word illegal to simplifying the controversy to single issues, have harmful effects on people's attitudes towards immigrants? Do you feel like there's a, a, a yeah? It's had it's had an effect on people's perceptions of the immigrants since the word alien was first used to describe undocumented individuals. It makes them the other and it dehumanizes them in a way that it's absolutely disastrous for them because if someone doesn't think you are an equal, it's easy to strip you of your rights. Mm-hmm. So yeah, and the way it's framed, um, illegals are look, seen as criminals, they're seen as um, leeches on the system. So yeah, mm-hmm. it's, it's a terrible thing because it molds people's perception of the issue itself. As soon as you hear illegal, you think shady. Exactly, yeah. illegal, undesirable. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, just I guess to play the devil's advocate a little bit because we don't have Mike Delph here or any of those other people. I mean, a lot of you know a lot of their argument is, hey, we're just trying to get people to follow the laws of the land. That people are here illegally, um, they should they shouldn't be here if they're if they're here illegally. Yeah, how do you how do you sort of respond to that? How do, and how do you address that issue in in some sort of a reasonable way? Well, I, I'll, I'll talk to that a little bit. I mean, the fir- the first issue is the question of whether a person can be illegal, but that's semantics. The second issue <laughs> yes. is whether they've actually broken the law, and that's not clear. It is a federal misdemeanor to enter the country without documentation. But the, the word illegal is used to describe people who are out of status in any way. So mm-hmm. most, many of the people who are here and in that category of illegal are actually have only violated a civil code, which is the Immigration Act. The Immigration Act is not a criminal code. It's a civil code. So when we, I don't know, I'm, I'm, I'm sure most people have committed some form of misdemeanor in their life, whether it's going too fast or littering or whatever the case might be. So to, to, to say that somebody is illegal because once in their life they committed a misdemeanor is, it's a, it's, I don't know, it, it's a little too much rhetoric there for me. I think it's, it's po- a political term in that sense. Well, but aren't, aren't, isn't it also a legal term of some sort? I mean, some of what you just described are, are, would be called infractions, correct, as opposed to misdemeanors. Is the term illegal a legal term? Yeah, well, I guess, yeah, I guess. I mean, it, when you when you say it's a misdemeanor, I mean, there's mm-hmm. a difference between a misdemeanor and littering, which is sure. an infraction, okay. or speeding, which, which is an infraction. That that's true. But there are misdemeanors that are mm-hmm. that are lower levels, public intoxication or mm-hmm. driving under the influence, and many people have done those and never been caught. Mm-hmm. What I'm trying to point out, though, is that one misdemeanor in someone's life does not permanently make them an illegal person. Right. You don't, if you commit a, a misdemeanor, say you're even com- convicted of it, you don't go around being called a misdemeanor the rest of your life. That's correct. <laughs> Fred, you wanted to respond to that. I think you did, anyway. 
Well, I, I, I could jump in. I, 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 one of the things that really um, I think it's important to look at is, is like where our economy is right now. So Indiana um, has, has it's growing um, just like every other state. Um, and, and what we're asking, though, is is for to consider the economic forces that are behind this. Right. Because mm-hmm. that seems like the most rational thing. Right. We 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 hope that our legislators look at what are our needs. And and clearly, if there's a presence of undocumented people, the, there's an economic need, and and I think to ignore that um, is is really unfortunate. Not just for um, immigrants who take advantage of, of these jobs that no one wants, um, but also for for community members who who do benefit from this. We they feed into our tax base, um, our, our property taxes that feed into our schools. Um, they do all these beneficial things, um, and and I don't think that these state legislators kind of recognize that because it's just so convenient to to get votes based on fear. Mm-hmm. Another reason is the reason why these folks are here. The vast majority are economic refugees because the country that they're from is in economic turmoil. So these people migrate over. And, uh, for example, Mexico, the vast majority of its income comes from remittances, which is money sent back from people who are here working back to their families. Mm-hmm. When that's the second largest source um, economic income for the entire country of Mexico, it's, it says something about the con- economic conditions of the country itself. And that's something to consider. These people are essentially economic refugees. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Christine, I want to... Let me give our numbers again oh, real sure. quick. In case somebody wants to call us. It would be great to get some other uh, voices here on the conversation. If you have questions, 855-0811 or 877-285-9348. And the web address is wfiu.org slash noon edition. Um, are you aware of any um, penalties or... Um, uh, we'll stick with penalties um, regarding employers of uh, people who are in this country illegally in these laws that we're discussing today. Yes. I, well, the, in the Federal Immigration Act, there are penalties against employers. And this is one of the questions that is being played out in the courts right now. But many of the states have also either enhanced the penalties against employers or added penalties against the employees who are seeking unauthorized work. So um, some of the penalties would be, for example, losing your business license or your license to have whatever business you are. So some of these copycat laws make that a a consequence of being caught knowingly hiring an unauthorized worker. Mm -hmm. I would think that that would almost just drive up day labor. Well, there are also provisions in many of these things prohibiting day labor or requiring a verification of ID for day laborers as well. So I guess they're trying to cover that as well. Yeah. All right. We have our first caller for, of the day. Dennis is on the phone. Dennis? Hi, Hi, Hi Dennis. I just wanted to make a comment. Um, when the uh, first um, European settlers crossed the Appalachian Mountains, the Native Americans didn't want them. Uh, when the English got established, the Irish and the Scottish came over. The English didn't want them. The Irish and the Scottish didn't want the Polish and the Italians. Um, basically, it's all selfish fear, and I think we ought to meet everybody at the border, give them a hug, and let them go get a job. That's all I got to say. Bye. <laughs> all right. <laughs> Thanks, Dennis. 855-0811 in Bloomington, 877-285-9348, and WFIU.org slash Noon Edition. Uh, it is kind of ironic when you think about U.S. history. I mean, mm-hmm. the whole idea of this being – you know, the nation being a great melting pot and immigration being such an par- important part of our history that we're now having these uh, major discussions over, you know, new tightened up immigration laws. Um, Christy, from a historical perspective, is, is this something new or have we had these immigration issues, you know, constantly? With uh, we've always had these immigration issues since people started immigrating here. And this is this is the same story that has been replayed over and over again, just as uh, the last caller described. So the Immigration Act, to some degree, reflects that as well. If you look at the way the Immigration Act has changed over the years, it has reflected each wave of immigrants mm-hmm. coming in. So when X group came in, X law was passed to prohibit that. And that has happened over and over again. Mm-hmm. You know, Dennis's comment notwithstanding, this feels extremely mean-spirited, um, but I guess you could make the case that it's always kind of taken that. Yes, go ahead, comment on that if you'd like, Alexia. Yeah, I, I think it, it's just very, very common in our, our history to have that. So um, 
we, we've seen that, you know, in California in the 90s, they tried to pass um, a law that just um, was incredibly discriminatory to to immigrants. And, um, and I think it's just only natural that we have that. But I think what is more interesting is where we are in terms of our um, – you know, the stage of globalization. And, and uh, to me, I, that always gets me that, you know, isn't it so interesting that um, as a country, we willingly accept the, the free trade, the goods that go through the United States borders. You know, it's, it's incredible the money that flows in billions of Wall Street out in and out in and out. So we have goods and we have money, we have capital. But suddenly, you know, we love that. We love globalization when it comes to that. But then when we ask, when the economic demands ask for humans to cross the border, suddenly, you know, what is that? We, we don't understand that. Yeah, it seems that throughout the history, the United States has tried to preserve its European heritage. And that's essentially the issue. Uh, back in the day, the quotas specifically limited non-Germanic or English individuals from entering the United States, which was the case with the Irish and then the Polish. So this issue seems to reverberate across time. And like she said, capital can flow freely, but like NAFTA... NAFTA has taken a great toll on the country of Mexico itself and has resulted in m- massive unemployment that's pushed immigrants across the border, and that, again, becomes an issue. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's go back to the phones. Catherine from Indianapolis is on the phone. Catherine? Yes, thank you. Um, I am of two minds. Um, all of my family, of course, was immigrant. Um, I have worked in a Hispanic outreach in my local church, and... I think as long as people are willing to work, um, even if they send most of their money back, let's find a special category such as um, financial refugee or whatever it takes. Um, I have had a lot of interactions, and the people are wonderful. Not all of them, but then not all of us are either. And I do realize that uh, having to provide bilingual education and having to provide health care for people who aren't really supporting that particular system or the school system is also a financial liability. So what are the comments on, on, on those aspects of it, please? All right. Thanks, Catherine. Thank you. One of, any of you. Christy? I'm just trying to see if I can frame her question right. So she wants to know what the legal issues are related to um, providing bilingual education or language access for um, medical services. If I understand correctly, that's what she was referring to. And there is federal requirements that um, that federal recipients or recipients of federal funds provide bilingual or provide translations or interpreters for those things. And also, it's something that I think doctors would want to do in the medical realm because it avoids malpractice issues. There are financial ramifications to that. But I think one one thing that people need to remember is that multiple languages is not something that's new or unique to the United States. It's something that's always been around. Spanish predates English in the United States, and there are many, many Spanish speakers. So it, it, it will cost money, but I, I mean, I, I, and it, it is the law, but I, I don't know how else to respond mm-hmm. to that, that issue. Um, as far as financial refugee, uh, that, that also is it's a possibility. I, I mean, I think there are, there are bills being passed to try to increase worker visas and um, provide those opportunities. But the, the problem is that the way the immigration law is written right now, if you've ever been in the country illegally, you can't get another status unless, I mean, with very few exceptions. So the whole Immigration Act itself would have to be rewritten to even allow that possibility. Mm-hmm. Well, we, you know, we talk a lot about uh, the immigration laws that seem to be popping up, certainly Indiana's, Arizona's, some other states that um, – have a lot of aspects that that you all and you know a lot of people uh, do not like. What are uh, are there some some bills, some laws that you would like to see passed? Uh, some that would help um, help solve this these issues that people perceive, whether they're real issues or not. Help solve the issues, address the issues that people perceive in a in a much more um, appropriate way or attractive way. I remember a while ago came, coming across this idea of a red card solution that granted individuals the right to work and only the right to work, and that would be 
literally the solution to the problem on both sides. If you give these individuals the right to work but not the right to reap the benefits of full citizenship or residency, mm-hmm. it addresses both sides of the argument. So you call that the red card solution? Yeah. Yes. Would they uh-huh. still would these workers still pay into uh, Oh, yeah, naturally they'd still pay taxes and property taxes. I don't I'm not sure how that would work, but they would still pay income taxes, which would benefit the American public and they would make a living, which would benefit them, but they don't have permanence. Mm-hmm. So Which is it, de facto what's happening here yeah, anyway. exactly. It grants legality to the transients of the migrant worker. Do you have a sponsor for your bill? No, <laughs> not as of yet. <laughs> sounds, get Mike sounds, like, yeah. Yeah, right? sounds like a good idea. Yeah. Sounds like a good plan. All right. Well, let's, I want to learn, if you don't mind, I'd like to learn um, more about what DreamIU is doing as a group. Well, DreamIU started in 2010 as an advocacy group to educate and promote the DREAM Act. The DREAM Act, as you probably know, is a defense, relief, and education for alien minors, which would grant a certain small amount of individuals who are in college or in the military and who came after the age of 16, before the age of 16, who were brought here before the age of 16, a path to residency and eventually citizenship. Mm-hmm. Now, I, DREAMIU started by, was started by a group of individuals who were very interested in the issue, and they advocated on a regular basis, and they have campaigns, call your senator, yada, yada, things like that. Now that the DREAM Act was turned down and that this new law that affects students came into play, 1402 and 590, the attention has obviously shifted to dealing with 1402 and the tuition, tuition issue because that's the limiting reagent mm-hmm. now. So as opposed here. to being proactive when it was established, now it's kind of in a defensive yeah, mode exactly. and, and so you're trying to... Yeah, we're <laughs> fighting the pressure of the law. Mm-hmm. So that's what we're doing now. We're trying to eventually get that statute removed from the law, but it's highly unlikely considering the overwhelming majority that voted in it. Mm-hmm. What, what form is your work taking? Are you doing working with lobbying, or what are you doing? Um, well, Alicia, as part of ICER, can probably explain that better. It's become a s- statewide coalition because we need presence across the state in order to – well, she – I mean, it's, it's a lot – It's really hard now because uh, so many people have been unfortunately left. You know, I think the numbers in the hundreds of of well-qualified students in college who had to drop out because they cannot afford the out-of-state tuition. And just keep in mind for the viewers, you do not qualify for financial aid. You have to pay out-of-pocket if you're any immigrant, right? So um, especially undocumented. And so you can't pay out-of-state. if You know, undocumented people are not wealthy. Um, So right now, I guess our thing is – our, our framework, our Dream IU and ICER and other students, has been how do we create um, an underground railroad, right, the 21st century? How do we um, reach out to high schoolers who have been here since they were two, since babies, and, and who have are just American? They wear Abercrombie and Fitch, and, you know, they, they like the same Justin Bieber. The, 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 but they're, but they're, they're <laughs> foreigners, right? But they're, and so how do we help them um, achieve the dreams that we have, they've been instilled with, just like any other American student? And that's so hard, right? It's so devastating to, to find out at the age of 16, like, you are not a member of this society, despite what you think. And that's so hard to, and so it, it's been more of a supportive role we play, um, because unfortunately, that is so hard for people to understand, uh, especially legislators, this idea that you can be an American um, but not a citizen. Well, I can't say how it's in our society's best interest to disenfranchise that, you know, a whole group of people like that when, you know. Well, we have, oh, go ahead, Fred. Well, it's definitely not. This is a pool of talent that is, <clears throat> well, to explain the immigrant communities, immigrant families. Put a, invest a lot of effort into teaching their children their work ethic. So you have a group of individuals who have this incredible work ethic, this incredible drive and ambition and optimism, and that is a pool of potential in, intellect and labor force that is completely untapped, and it's a terrible, terrible waste. We have a phone call. Let's go to um, Mihi on the phone. Hi. Hi. Um was told by a really good friend to check out this program at noon, and I missed um, uh, a little bit at the beginning. And actually, when I was trying to call in, um, I, I wanted to ask about the Dream Act specifically, and then you all were sort of talking about it anyway. Um, so that was great. But um, just curious, like in a place like Bloomington, um, we just recently relocated here and um, realized. I mean, we kind of were aware of this, but um, thought with the university um, that there would be a lot more visible diversity. Um, I mean, how do you raise awareness and social consciousness for this sort of an issue in a place like Bloomington where it doesn't feel like the issue is as pressing as 
say, in Arizona or in California or even um, somewhere out east or whatever, um, like what are some of the things that we can do just as regular public citizens to um, to get more involved and, and to um, and to make folks just sort of aware and a part of the dialogue. Thank you for your call. I think that's a really Alicia, um, yeah. you're, you're certainly right about this kind mm-hmm. of um, perception of, of of not having so much diversity. <laughs> but um, I would say that that there that we have done a lot, and and um, the community members are have been very responsive. Um, we have organizations that, for those who are undocumented, they have given um, money. Uh, uh, help for um, buying textbooks for for college, which can range up to the thousands. Um, and then we also have President McRobbie, who we we push for him to to support uh, publicly the Federal Dream Act. So the president of Indiana University um, supports the the passage of the Dream Act. So, but there's so much we can do, and we have to do. Um, and you don't know what you mean. Yeah, the issue is manpower. We have a very small group of individuals working on this issue, and we're all very 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 busy as well trying to, you know, make it through college. So the issue is uh, if we were to involve the community and get the members to be just as interested as us, we could have a very nice um, both weight and momentum, and that provides impetus and pressure on legislators to work this out. Yeah, this is not your day job. You're students. What, yeah. what are you majoring in, the two of you? I'm majoring in political science and human migration studies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm cognitive science and computer science. Okay. Right. Uh, here's a uh, comment that came in. Uh, I worry about people having access to emergency services, and I know that a lot of people are afraid to seek out services if they're doing something illegal. What can undocumented immigrants do if, for instance, they're in situations of domestic violence but are afraid to get help because of their status? Is that something? Uh, sure. Well, first of all, even under the new legislation, the, the law enforcement officials are not supposed to ask for s- the evidence of status for people who are victims or witnesses of crimes. So people should not fear going to the police to, to report a crime. And also the same goes if they go to their doctor. Um, emergency medical services are available to people no matter what their status is. That is one public benefit that is available. Okay. We are out of time. <clears throat> I want to thank our guests today. Christy Pop, uh, Alicia Nieves, and Fred Diego, as, long, as well as Angela Adams for Mary Catherine Carmichael, producers Gretchen Frazee and Julie Raw, and engineer Mike Pashkash. I'm Bob Salzberg. Thanks for listening. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922 with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Also, Premier Ortho, a division of Premier Healthcare, helping people living with injuries and chronic back, spine, or joint pain to get back on their feet. Premier Ortho, 333-1933, online at mypremierortho.com.